Calvary Chapel Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our senior pastor, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study, designed to help us grow in the Word. Amen. You may be seated. For a number of weeks now, we have been looking at different passages of Scripture which shed light on what's happening in America and in the world. You know, what's wrong with America? we asked? Well, it's first and foremost a spiritual problem. We live in a world that openly opposes God in big and small ways. And as a nation, we have rejected God and his word. And this rejection is merely the outward manifestation of the hatred for God and for his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that that fills the hearts of unbelievers. Christian thinking is no longer the predominant worldview in our nation. Secular humanistic thinking, the very antithesis of Christian thinking, is now the predominant worldview. Secular humanists, of course, have no use for God, for the Bible, for the church, or for Christian people in general. It is a godless, man-centered worldview. And sadly, secular humanists have taken over our government, our courts, and our public education. We are living in a post-Christian secular, humanistic, pagan, anti-God society. And this is why we're seeing every vestige of God, the Bible and biblical morals and values being removed from the public square. And this is why our nation celebrates many of the very things that the Word of God condemns. And this is why the work of God and the people of God are encountering more and more opposition. Our nation has abandoned God, and God has returned the favor. And there is no doubt that God has abandoned America. He has lifted his hand of restraining grace, permitting us to go our own way, abandoning us to suffer the awful consequences of our sinful choices. And as we learned in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, we are experiencing God's wrath of abandonment in our culture. That wrath expressed by God when he turns his back on a society and it's given up to evil and set on a course that leads God giving men over to sexual immorality and then to unnatural sexual perversions and then finally to a debased mind. A mind that can do nothing except those things which Paul says ought not to be done or those things that are completely unfitting and improper. And in that passage that we spent five weeks in, there in Romans 1, Paul gave us an entire list of antisocial practices which ought not to be done, things which together describe the breakdown of human community as standards disappear and society disintegrates. And what is even worse, as we learned, Paul said there in verse 32, that even though men know that those who practice such things deserve to die, They not only commit such sins, but they give approval to those who practice them. I mean, think of it. 
They give approval to those who practice them. They, they approve. They're, they're proud and defiant in their sinful ways. They, they flaunt their sin and celebrate it. Even though they know that those who practice such things are deserving of death, they applaud and encourage them. And these are the telltale signs of any godless society in its death throes. And loved ones, this is happening before our very eyes today in America. We are currently living in the midst of it. Our society is decaying and descending further into depravity. We are nearing the bottom of immorality, and there is only one hope to pull us out of this death spiral. Only the transforming power of God working through the gospel can explode in lives and reverse this downward spiral toward destruction. So what we, as we looked at Romans 1, what, what we have there is an, is an accurate, up-to-date description of our society. This is the state of our nation and, and the state the world is in at this present hour. But what about the church? What about the church? And this is an extremely important question to ask because people in church hear messages from Romans 1 and they say, yep, that's right. That's exactly uh, what those unbelievers are doing. That's just exactly what's going on. But we must also ask, what about the church? You know, what is wrong with the church? You say, well, what do you mean? Well, it's not only our nation that's in the dire, disastrous state. The church in this country is in a dreadful, grievous, appalling state. What's, what's happening in the church? And I don't believe anyone here would disagree that these are desperate, difficult times for the church. I don't think any of us imagine that we would, we would experience the rapid decline that we have seen spiritually and morally. I'm talking about in the church. I mean, churches in, in, in this country continue their decline as ideas and behaviors that are morally and biblically wrong such as homosexuality, lesbianism, homosexual marriage, homosexuals being ordained into the ministry, abortion. These things are being accepted, even promoted and encouraged by church leaders. While long-held biblical and moral standards are being condemned and labeled uh, not only as being out of touch or not relevant for today, but as hateful, racist, intolerant, Gender prejudice, misogynistic, homophobic, transphobic, etc., etc. False teaching abounds in the church today. There is the health and prosperity gospel, the signs and wonders movement, the new apostolic reformation, and other various shades of all of the above that are scourges upon the church. There are the deconstructionists. Like other philosophies that come out of postmodernism, deconstructionism celebrates human autonomy and determines truth by the intellect of man. And therefore, according to the postmodern thinker, all truth is relative and, and there is no such thing as absolute truth. And so instead of accepting what the Bible actually says, The deconstructionist is arrogant enough to think that he can determine the motive behind what was written and come up with the real or the hidden meaning of the text. 
And to the deconstructionist, there's no right or wrong interpretation, and the meaning of the text becomes whatever the reader wants it to be. Then there is progressive Christianity, which is a more recent movement in Protestantism that focuses strongly on social justice and environmentalism and often includes a revisionist or non-traditional view of the Scriptures. In general, members of this movement do not hold to the biblical doctrine of the inerrancy of Scripture, and again, in general, they do not believe that the Bible is the literal Word of God. Progressive Christianity also tends to emphasize what is known as collective salvation as opposed to personal salvation, which the Word of God teaches. Collective salvation emphasizes the restoration of whole cultures and and societies to what progressive Christians believe is the correct socioeconomic structure, namely Marxism. Of course, Marxism in turn is a theory of economics and politics developed by the the atheist Karl Marx. And then beyond that, you have evangelical denominations and churches accepting critical race theory and intersectionality, which are Marxist ideologies. In fact, the largest denomination in the United States, the Southern Baptist Convention, has formally adopted critical race theory and intersectionality as helpful tools. Some have even suggested that the Christian church must adopt critical race, the critical race theory approach to society or else it is not really preaching the gospel. Some evangelical pastors and churches are supporting the Black Lives Matter movement, which is a Marxist organization. And on their website, they state their purpose is to destroy uh, the family and to destroy our government and to institute a Marxist government in its place. Other pastors and churches are buying into the social justice movement, becoming woke, you know, becoming woke to white privilege, social injustice, systemic racism, which they say not only infects this country and all of its institutions, but the church as well. In fact, a well-known black evangelical pastor has even called for reparations to be made to black Americans. On Thanksgiving Day, the Daily Wire reported on a campaign by the Salvation Army called Let's Talk About Racism. And in the 67-page resource provided by the Salvation Army are calls for white Christians to repent and offer a sincere apology to blacks for being antagonistic to values, culture, and interests of the black community. It it essentially tells all white Christian people how racist they are and that they need to profusely apologize for their wrongdoings. The Salvation Army is not only asking white people to repent, but they're also offering to teach more about whiteness and how we are inherently privileged simply being white. Now, since the original posting of this article, they have received so much flack that the Salvation Army has pulled their 67-page resource on racism off the internet. But I'm sure you could still find it somewhere. Now, let me just say this with regard to racism. Racism of any kind is evil. It is evil. And there is only one race, and that is the human race. 
And ultimately, we all have the same parents. All men are created in the image of God. There is one race. Yes, there's different ethnicities, but only one race. And regarding racism, we should all agree that no one, no one should be judged by the color of his or her skin. And we should fight against all true forms of racism and be compassionate to its victims. And most importantly, we should point people to Christ, who is the only answer for racism, because racism is the result of sin. And until the sin problem is dealt with, until people become new creations in Christ, the problem of racism will never be eradicated. Only in Christ can racial reconciliation be found. For as Paul said in Ephesians 2.14, For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. On another front, nationwide, there are churches implementing vaccine mandates. Some are requiring not just clergy and staff to get vaccinated, but even congregants if you want to attend church. In fact, one Episcopal A church in Northern California is enforcing this all-encompassing mandate complete with ushers who will turn away those without proof of vaccination. I mean, this is merely a sampling of what's happening in the church. And beyond all this, across the country and across the board, it doesn't seem to matter which denomination, group, or affiliation it is, there is a general lukewarmness. There is an apathy, a lack of commitment when it comes to God and and the things of God. Consequently, there's a lack of attendance, a lack of giving, a lack of people to serve. The love of many seems to be growing cold. Consequently, the best estimate among researchers is that there will be 3,850 to 7,700 churches closing a year, which works out to around 75 to 150 churches a week that are going to close their doors. What's wrong with the church? We're following in the footsteps of England. As one commentator wrote, the full counsel of God has been displeasing, unacceptable, and even repugnant to self-centered, self-serving, and worldly mankind throughout the ages. But even in the professing church today, there is greater confusion, apostasy, moral decay, and tolerance for things that are clearly unscriptural than ever before. Sermons on current issues, selectively using Bible passages that are relevant and positive, are attracting many hearers, including genuine but misled and worldly believers. The time will come, Paul writes later in this epistle, when many in the church will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. In other words, they're going to go from place to place, from church to church, looking for a church and a pastor who will stroke them and and affirm them and be positive and tell them what they want to hear. They will gladly substitute their own sinful desires for the truth of God's Word. And they are no different than the people of Isaiah's day of whom the Lord said they are a rebellious people, lying children, 
Children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy illusions. Leave the way. Turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. We live in desperate, difficult times. False teachers and false believers abound in the visible church, promoting their particular brand of false teaching, but this should come as no surprise. Near the beginning of his ministry, Jesus warned in Matthew 7.15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Near the end of his ministry, Jesus expanded the warning from Matthew 7 when he said in Matthew 24, Verses 11, excuse me, verse 11 and 12. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray and become, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. And then in verse 24 of Matthew 24, he said, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Paul warned in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Peter warned in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, But false prophets who arose among the people... But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. The Apostle John warned in 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 and 19, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Jude warned in in Jude verse 4, For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God unto sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, these warnings were not only for the church in that day. These warnings are for the church in every age. I mean, the same dangers that plague the New Testament church have continued and, and have become worse and worse throughout the church age as evil Evil people and imposters go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, Paul said in 2 Timothy 3. Loved ones, we are continually warned in Scripture that false teachers, false teaching, and ungodly living will continue to afflict the church until the Lord Jesus Christ returns. And as the quote I just read stated, we see in the visible professing church today greater confusion, apostasy, moral decay, and tolerance for things that are clearly unbiblical than ever before. And loved ones, this is not pessimistic. This is the reality of living in the last days. 
Well, does the Bible have anything to say to us about what we see happening in the church? It sure does. And that's what I want us to look at together this morning. So please turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. And I'm going to ask you to stand as I read verses 1 through 5. So take your Bible, stand, and follow along as I read 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Beginning now in verse 1 of 2 Timothy chapter 3, this is the word of the Lord. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. May the Lord bless this reading of his word and our time together in it. You may be seated. It is always important to understand the context in which something is written, and so I want us to understand the context in which Paul wrote these words of warning to Timothy uh, who was his beloved son in the faith. I mean, as many of you know, 2 Timothy is the last letter the Apostle Paul wrote shortly before he was martyred. And it's been called Paul's last will and testament. When Paul wrote 2 Timothy, he knew that his time of death was near. And you know, when, when someone realizes that they, they are about to die, you know, they make sure that they say the things that are really important. I mean, they don't, they don't mess around. They, they cut through all the peripheral stuff and get, get down to what really matters, to what really is important. And that's what we have in 2 Timothy, the last written words of the Apostle Paul. When Paul wrote 2 Timothy, he was being held in change in a dark, dank, stinking dungeon in the Mamertine prison in Rome. I mean, it was just, the conditions were absolutely deplorable. To make matters worse, he was deserted by everyone in Asia Minor. Only Onesiphorus, I always mess up that name. Onesiphorus, Onesiphorus and Luke were with him. So like Jesus, Paul had been forsaken by those that he had served and loved the most. And not only was Paul in a dungeon waiting to be executed, Timothy was in difficult circumstances as well. Timothy was in a world that was hostile toward Christianity. The persecution of Christians by the Roman government was in full swing. Not only that, the church at this time was pretty much cold and apathetic. Many had turned their back on the Lord. There were many false teachers and false believers. Apostasy and heresy had infiltrated the church. It seems that Paul had reason to fear that Timothy was in danger of weakening spiritually. 
Paul had placed Timothy in Ephesus with instructions to set things in order because the church at Ephesus had fallen into doctrinal error and sin in terms of their behavior. And it's interesting, just as a side note, it is interesting that years earlier in Acts 20, Paul's third missionary journey was winding down. He was on his way to Jerusalem, and his ship docked in the port at Miletus. And while he was there, he sent for the Ephesian elders who who came and met with him on the beach there in Miletus. And among other things, this is what Paul said to them. Now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And then he said this, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Why is that, Paul? He said, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And if that's not bad enough, then he added, and from among your own selves. So from within the church will arise men speaking twisted things. Why? Well, for the purpose, he says, of drawing away the disciples after them. Therefore, he said, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Paul warned the Ephesian elders about false teachers, not only from without, but also from within. And it was those who arose from within the church that posed the greatest threat to the church. And now, as Paul was writing 2 Timothy, as he's writing to Timothy, who is pastoring the church in Ephesus, it is obvious that what he warned the Ephesian elders about years earlier had, in fact, happened. There were leaders in the church who had no business being in leadership. They were teaching error and leading ungodly lives. And Timothy was trying to to set all this in order. He was trying to bring about change, but he was running into some, some tremendous opposition. And Timothy may have been questioning his calling, fearful of those opposing him and, and failing to use the gifts that God had given him. I mean, Scripture seems to indicate that Timothy was timid by nature, and so Uh, He seemed to be demonstrating a tendency to be ashamed of the gospel. And so it was a very difficult time for Timothy, and there was a real concern. This was a real concern to Paul, because he was depending upon Timothy to carry on the work. And Paul's concern is evident, because in, in the first chapter, Paul exhorts Timothy to stir up the gift which God had given him, you know, to replace fear with power, love, and a sound mind. To not be ashamed of the Lord or of Paul, but be willing to suffer for the gospel and to hold on to the truth. In chapter 2, he exhorted Timothy to share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. In chapter 3, he reminded Timothy that all who desire to live in, in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And he exhorted Timothy to continue in the things which he had learned, that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. And then finally in chapter 4, he charged Timothy before God and the Lord Jesus Christ to preach the Word, 
to be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Paul told Timothy that the time would come when people in the church would not endure sound doctrine. Rather, they turn away from the truth to fables. But he said, Timothy, you always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. I mean, Paul was writing this letter to encourage a young pastor who might be weakening under the pressure of the church and the persecution of the world and to prepare him for what lied ahead. And so he said to Timothy in verse 1 of chapter 2, be strong. And that's really the heart of the whole epistle. That's really what Paul wants to say to Timothy. It's, it's the whole idea behind this second epistle. Be strong. Paul wanted Timothy to continue to be faithful and to be strong, to be strengthened, he says, by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. But he also wanted Timothy to be prepared for what he would be facing. And so in chapter 3, verses 1 through 13, he warns Timothy of the conditions which already existed to some degree in Ephesus and would continue to exist throughout the last days. And the verses we're looking at this morning, and we won't get through them, we'll finish them up next week, Lord willing. But the verses we're looking at this morning give us a clear picture of the spiritual and moral climate of the church in the last days. And that includes Timothy's day just as it includes our day. In verse 1, Paul warns of difficult times. In verses 2 to 4, he lists the characteristics of false teachers and believers within the church. And then in verse 5, he describes their religion and then instructs how to relate to them. Now, in the final verses of chapter 2, Paul exhorted Timothy to be a vessel of honor, and that the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. And so he's telling Timothy that in the life of the pastor, there's to be a a kindness and a gentleness. But then we come to verse 1 of chapter 3, and Paul gives Timothy and us a real good dose of reality. And he begins by saying in verse 1, but understand this. The word but is a word of contrast. It, It indicates a change of direction. So Paul's changing direction from the exhortation to be a godly vessel for honor, one characterized by kindness, patience, and gentleness, to the exhortation to be a responsible and fearless guardian of God's people, protecting them from false doctrine and immoral living. So in contrast to the gentleness patient endurance and kindness, there is also to be a strength and a power and a resoluteness and a zero tolerance for false teachers and false doctrine. I mean, you can be gentle, but don't relax. You can be meek, but don't get fooled. Don't get lulled to sleep. And Paul says to Timothy, but understand. And this word understand means to realize or to know. Literally, it reads... This, but no. And Paul phrased it that way to get Timothy's undivided attention. And it is in the present tense which carries the idea of constancy and continuity, which means that as long as Timothy was given breath and strength to serve the Lord and his people, he was to heed this warning of the Apostle Paul. 
Now, Timothy was very much aware of the ongoing opposition to the gospel. He was aware of the false teachers and false teaching, the false believers that were in the church there at Ephesus. So why does Paul command Timothy to understand what he already knows? Well, because he wants to emphasize that opposition to the truth is not something that's going to pass away. It's going to continue. It'll be a permanent characteristic of the age. And perhaps Paul was afraid that Timothy would be over-optimistic, hoping that if he just, you know, kind of backed off and laid low for a while, the storm would pass. But Paul didn't offer any such hope. And we too need to understand this. We too need to realize the difficulties and the troubles we will face if we stand firm in the truth of God's Word. I mean, Paul's point is that this truth is important to know. And he is saying, don't be naive. You know, don't think that everything is going to be okay. It's not all going to be okay. I mean, Paul knew that to be forewarned is to be forearmed. If we know what is going to happen, we won't be surprised when it does, or at least not as surprised. And so Paul is commanding Timothy as a good soldier, and by implication all saints in these last days, to continually know to continually keep before him the realization of the intensity of the struggle that goes on for the truth. I mean, one man paraphrases it, Timothy, you must emphatically, or you emphatically must know what I'm about to tell you. And what is it that Paul wants Timothy to know? We'll look back at the verse. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. And the Greek word translated here as difficulty means perilous. It means troublesome, trying, grievous, hard, violent, threatening, and dangerous. It implies hard to bear or, or hard to deal with. I mean, the picture is that of people running to and fro and here and there, not, not knowing which way to turn because things are so difficult. And the only other time this Greek word is used in the New Testament is in Matthew 8.28, where it is translated as exceedingly fierce, in reference there to the two violent demoniacs in the country of the Gadarenes. So Paul warns Timothy that in the last days there will come difficult, perilous, exceedingly violent, dangerous times. And certainly every generation has had its struggles and is identified with this verse. But I think that you will have to agree that we are living in the midst of trying, difficult, troublesome, and, and dangerous days. Aren't we? I mean, during the pandemic, we saw the government at every level seek to shut down churches. They levied hefty fines against some churches who remained open. In Canada, we saw pastors arrested. I mean, one of them taken down in the middle of a freeway like a fleeing felon. Arrested and jailed for not shutting down their church. And then when churches began opening up, they tried to tell us how we could worship. 
They wanted to limit the number of people who could attend to an extremely small number. They wanted everyone to wear a mask. They wanted social distancing. There was to be no singing, no communion, no greeting or shaking hands or hugging. Caesar was trying to dictate to the church how it was to worship. But the church does not belong to Caesar. The church is Christ, and Christ alone tells us how to worship him. And we're not yet facing physical persecution here in America, but, but the attack on biblical Christianity continues and is rapidly increasing, and, and I believe that persecution is, is on the horizon. Those who hold the biblical view of marriage, the family, biblical manhood and womanhood are viewed as racists, bigots unloving and intolerant. We have lost all sanctity for human life. I mean, millions upon millions of babies have perished within the safety of their mother's womb. What should be the safest place in the world for a baby? Millions have perished there. Evil is now good. Good is viewed as evil. What we are seeing all around us is a society that is absolutely on the brink of collapse. And sometimes I think that we as Christians get so distracted, I know we do, we get so distracted by our worldliness and, and living and enjoying life in this world, we are completely unaware of the serious nature of the times in which we live. I've said this before, it's like people rearranging the, uh, the deck chairs on the Titanic. And that is because so much of Christianity in this country has become so watered down and compromised that it's not even recognizable as biblical Christianity. And so many believers today have the mistaken idea that God is merely the means to an end, namely their comfort and their happiness and their pleasure and their leisure. And the church is in a mess. And people are looking for fire insurance. They don't want to go to hell, but they don't want to live for Christ. Despite the fact that we have been bought for a price, we no longer belong to ourselves, but to Him. And we're called to no longer live for ourselves, but to live for Him. And then when we consider the world scene with the constant threat from radical Islamic groups, many of them funded by Iran, and the relentless persecution of Christians around the world, listen, it's clear we are living in dangerous, perilous times. I mean, looking back at the verse, you'll notice Paul says these times of difficulty will come when? In the last days. What does that mean? Most people take it to mean just the few years right before Christ returns. Not so. When he says last days, he is referring to the long period of time between the first and second coming of Christ, the church age. How do we know? The writer of Hebrews said long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also he created the world. Peter, speaking on the day of Pentecost, said in Acts 2, 16 and 17, But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. 
And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. John in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, a verse we already read, I'll read it again, warned his readers in the early church, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. So it's clear from Scripture that the phrase, the last days, or what it refers to, it's not limited to the few years just before Christ returns. The entire period of time between Christ's first coming and his second coming is considered the last days. We are living in the time between that first and second coming, all of which may properly be called the last days. The last days included Timothy's day. It includes our day and every day up until the Lord returns. And the word times, it's not the Greek word chronos referring to chronological time, but rather kairos referring to seasons or to periods of time or to epochs or eras. And the fact that the word times is plural indicates there are different periods or seasons of varying degrees of danger and difficulty that the church will experience throughout the last days. And so the idea is that during the last days, or the church age, there will be various periods of time, I mean some more intense than others, in which the church will face difficult, intense, dangerous, sometimes violent opposition. And Paul is warning Timothy that the whole church age will be characterized by times of difficulty. There will be violent assaults against the church. That's the context here. That's the age in which Timothy lived. That is the age in which we live. Furthermore, it isn't going to get easier. It is only going to get worse. And we should not be surprised by that. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And so Paul wants Timothy to know that what he's experiencing in the church at Ephesus is something that will be common throughout the church's history. And it will continue to escalate as we move toward the second coming of Christ and be more intense the closer we get to the second coming of Christ. Now Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So that, that is wonderful news. So no matter what happens, Christ is going to continue to build his church. He's going to continue to save people and build his church. Jesus said he'll build the church. Gates of hell will not prevail against it. But Jesus did not promise that his people would be free from spiritual danger and harm, much to the contrary. And you will also notice that Paul does not speak of these times of difficulty as a mere possibility. He says, understand or know that in the last days there what? Will. There will come times of difficulty. And Paul tells Timothy in the next chapter, all who desire to live God in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. We just read it. And, but the point is these difficult times will come. They will come. But the point is, 
we, we can't expect that things in the church are, are going to get better and better. They're going to get more and more difficult and more violent all the time, and we're seeing that. I mean, certainly God can intervene at times, and he has in the past, where he brings revival. But generally speaking, it's not going to get better. Everybody says, oh, we're in the last days, closer to when Jesus comes. Yay! But they forget what the last days are all about. They're not pleasant days. They are extremely difficult, hard days, perilous days. We need to be aware of that so that we can be like the men of Issachar, you know, understanding of the times so we'll know what we should do. So Paul isn't speaking of things that might happen. No, he he speaks of certainty. He wants us to understand that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. They cannot be prevented or avoided. There's just going to be an escalation of violence against the things of God coming from the kingdom of darkness. In the last days will be fierce, violent, dangerous, frightening. The last days will be savage times when men cast off all moral restraint and society begins to disintegrate. We're seeing it. Loved ones, we're seeing it. It's happening before our very eyes. And ultimately, it's going to culminate in the Antichrist himself, as Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. The Antichrist is, is going to come, and he's going to be the absolute epitome of deceivers. And so, loved ones, if you think for one moment that there will ever be a time when the church can sit back and relax because the battle is finally won, you are so mistaken. J.C. Ryle said, Conversion is not putting a man in an armchair and taking him easily to heaven. It is the beginning of a mighty conflict in which it costs much to win the victory. I mean, as Paul told Uh, believers, new believers in Acts 14.22, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Well, that's encouragement for your faith, right? I mean, new believer, well, know this. (laughs) Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Well, it's true. I mean, not until the Lord Jesus takes us to be with himself are we going to get out of this war. And furthermore, Again, it is not going to get easier. It's going to get worse. We need to understand that. You say, well, this just isn't a very pleasant, comforting message. It's not meant to be. It's meant to wake us up. It's meant to get our attention and to prepare us for what's coming so that we're not caught off guard. That's what Paul was doing for Timothy. That's why these verses are in the Word of God. We need to get this, uh, you know, it's a small world Disneyland mentality out of our mind in the sense that's that's how we live in this country. You know, everything's just going to be okay. We're just all going to be happy and comfortable and life's just going to go on. It's not. Perilous times are coming. They're here. They're upon us. And they're going to escalate. And I want, I want to be prepared, and I want all of you to be prepared. We must be prepared. 
We can't be caught off guard. And so in this first verse, Paul commands Timothy to understand and to realize that that grievous, difficult times will come. They will be both painful and perilous, hard to endure and hard to cope with. But like Paul told Timothy in in chapter 2, verse 1, we're to be strong. We're to be strong, you know, to be strengthened uh, in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. I mean, Timothy was living in such days, and so are we. The things Paul will go on to describe were already in the church. They would get worse in the future, but even in Timothy's day, there were great times of difficulty. And Paul wanted Timothy, and he wants us to understand and be prepared for it. Paul says, know it, know it, understand it, realize it. There will be times of difficulty. I mean, this is what the church must expect in the last days. I mean, but in this, don't you see the love of God? Don't you see the mercy of God and the grace of God? That he hasn't left us here as orphans. He hasn't left us here to just blindly grope along on our own. No, he's, he's telling us what's going to happen. And his great mercy and grace, because he loves us, he's, he's wanting to prepare us for what's coming. We need to wake up out of our slumber. We need to ask God to revive us, and deliver us from our apathy and our complacency and our self-centered, self-serving lives. I mean, as Christians, we, we, we need to be not pessimists, but realists. Realists. Listen, as believers, we are extremely optimistic with respect to what Jesus is doing and will continue to do through the power of the gospel. I mean, he's going to continue to build his church and to save and to transform lives. Man, we're, we're very optimistic about that, aren't we? We're also very optimistic about the fact that we know the Lord is going to return. He's coming. He really is. And he's going to, when he does, he's going to make all things right. So we're, we're very optimistic as believers. Very optimistic about Christ and what he has done and what he is doing and what he is going to do. I mean, my goodness, even through the great tribulation, when we're in heaven, I mean, he's still going to be saving. He's going, there's going to be many, many, many saved during the tribulation. Christ is on the throne. He is saving. So we're very optimistic. But we must also be realistic with regard to the times in which we live. Because again, nowhere does the Bible teach that the world is going to get better and better every day and in every way. And to think so is to live your life like an ostrich with your head stuck in the sand. It's to be just foolish. It's to be like the the virgins who didn't the five virgins who didn't put oil in their lamps. Well, let me ask you, do you think the world has gotten better during the time that you've been around? Huh? 
Because as I look around, as I read, as I look at the statistics, I quickly realize that the the world is getting worse and worse. As the return of Christ draws near, it's going to get worse and worse. I love what, what an old missionary that I knew, and he spoke at this church many times. Many of you know him, Richard Bennett. Uh, Dr. Bennett said on more than one occasion, he told me, he said, you know, I believe in the great tribulation. He said, but I also believe in a pre-tribulation tribulation. In other words, uh, it was going to get really bad leading up to the rapture of the church and then the great tribulation. And listen, the the increase in evil is not simply because we have more people in the world and better news coverage. Not at all. Because evil is deeper and more intense. And sadly and tragically, it's being accepted and promoted uh, by society and even the church in a much bolder way. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. And truly, we are living in those times. And Paul goes on now to tell us why. And we're going to stop right here. But look what he says. Look at the first four words of verse 2. For people will be. You want to know why in the last days times will be difficult and perilous? You want to know why the visible church in this country is in such a mess? People. Sinful people. It doesn't say plants or animals, does it? doesn't say the environment. No, it says the times will be difficult because of people. I mean, it's important to grasp that it is people who are responsible for the times of difficulty which the church must endure. Fallen people, sinful people, and, and of course behind it all is Satan, the enemy of our souls, but on the human level it's people. Fallen people whose behavior is self-centered and self-serving and and worldly. People whose minds are hostile to God and His law and who spread evil, false teaching, and dead religion in the church. Well, the problem is people. The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. Man's heart, as Jeremiah said, is deceitful above all things and desperately sick or desperately wicked. And man's heart hasn't changed. Man's heart hasn't changed from the very beginning. Our clothes have changed. Our transportation has changed. Our communication has changed. Our technology has advanced by incredible leaps and bounds, but man's heart has not changed. Because only the gospel of Jesus Christ can change a man's heart. And so we learn here that we're living in the last days, and these last days will include times or seasons of of difficulty and peril as a result of the activities of sinful people. And next week, as we, as we look at the rest of these verses, as we come to verses 2 to 4, Paul describes the characteristics of these people. But I want you to understand and think about this during the week. What we need to understand is as we read through this long list of sinful characteristics, what we have to understand is that Paul is not speaking about atheists or people who would never darken the door of a church. He is is speaking about those within the church. He is describing people who profess to be Christians. Some are even church leaders. 
And there are people who have an appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. But we'll save that uh, for next week, Lord willing. So read through these verses. Think about them uh, in preparation for next Sunday. You know, someone might be thinking, well, boy, you know, we sang those Christmas hymns at the beginning of the service, and, and then this? You know, this is pretty bleak. This is a pretty dark and, and bleak picture. Yes, it is. But it's the picture that Scripture gives us of the last days. Would you rather I stand here and lie to you and tell you that everything's going to be Okay. And then we can just go on living our happy little lives with no thought about the future because it's just going to be okay. And you're the greatest and there's a champion in you. (laughs) If I ever do that, just hit me in the head and drag me (laughs) off of this stage. This is the picture the Word of God gives us of the last days. But that should be encouraging. Because the Bible tells us, the Bible's warning us, God is preparing us. And the good news is, he's going he's to take us to be with him. No more sorrow, no more crying, no more tears. One day, we are actually going to be able to look into the eyes of the one who loved us and gave himself for us. And all of this is, is nothing compared to what being with him is going to be like. And the good news is that in the midst of these dangerous, perilous times, the church of Jesus Christ has great opportunity to be light and salt and to shine forth the light of the glory of the gospel in the midst of all of this darkness. That's why we've been left here. Do you realize that? We haven't been left here to live for ourselves, and that doesn't mean... Uh, we're not, you know, we're not able to enjoy the, the, the things that God has given us. It doesn't mean that at all. But that's not, that shouldn't be the purpose and the focus of our lives. No, we've been left here for a reason. That's to live for him. It's to live out the Christian life and to proclaim the gospel as we have opportunity. Why? Because people all around us are headed to an eternal hell. And if we understood the horrors of hell, we would, think, uh, we, we would think more soberly about this. So the church has great opportunity now to be the light and salt that God has called us to be, to, to shine the light of the gospel, because that's our only hope. That's our only hope. Listen, the best that any kind of political change could do is, is only temporary. It would be temporarily beneficial, and that's in doubt. But there's, the only thing that's going to change the overall course and, and direction of our country is the gospel. If people's hearts are changed, that's our only hope. That's the only hope that men and women, men and women have of escaping the wrath that is to come. Christ and faith in him alone is our only hope. Amen. Your love, 
behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Chapel Reading Palisadro, we hope and pray this study you just heard will help you grow in the Word. If you have any remaining questions or comments, please call us at 530-547-4400. That's 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the website at ccredding.com. Thank you for listening. And may God richly bless you. Growing.